Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 8 of Discovering the Old Testament. As we mentioned before, Abraham is regarded as the father of the Jewish nation, as well as the Arab peoples, and a number of other ethnic groups, all of whom regard Abraham as their progenitor. Christians, too, have developed a sense of kinship, even claiming a part of his heritage through adoption of those who follow Jesus. From a standpoint of progeny and influence, it's pretty clear that Abraham did very well for himself. So we might find it strange to note that the theme of the patriarchal narratives, which is what scholars call the stories about Abraham and his descendants, is about survival. Why did Abraham and his children survive? What made them worthy of God's favor, blessing, and covenant? When you consider that these works were redacted to their final form around the time of the Babylonian exile, when the very survival of the Jewish people and their religion was at stake, perhaps it makes a little more sense why this was such an important question that they devoted nearly all of an entire book to it, namely the book of Genesis. The first order answer to the question of why Abraham survived is because of the covenant with God, but that leaves unanswered the question of why Abraham was singled out for such favor. Before we go much further, it might be helpful for us to look at what a covenant is. We talked very briefly about this earlier and defined a covenant as a set of mutual obligations backed by consequences for compliance or disobedience. For our purposes, that's a good working definition, but I'd also like to look at the form used to present covenants because it makes it easier for you as a reader to spot them when they appear. Just like many other kinds of legal documents, there was an accepted form for covenants. This was first noticed back in the 1950s by a scholar named George Mendenhall, who was studying international treaties from the ancient city of Mari. He identified a pattern to those treaties regarding how they were laid out and later discovered that a number of covenantal passages in the Bible used a similar pattern. Here is a rather generic breakdown of what scholars now call the Treaty Covenant Pattern. It consists of roughly six sections. Part 1 is a preamble, usually identifying at least one of the parties to the covenant. Part 2 consists of a brief historical prologue describing the history of the relationship between the two parties up to this point. It also states the history in a way that speaks to the reason for the covenant. Part 3 is the nitty-gritty. This is where the covenant stipulates the terms. These are the obligations incumbent on each of the parties. Part 4 is a provision for the deposition of the text, if the covenant is written. This is where we learn who gets copies, where they are to be kept, and how they will be treated. For example, a covenant might require that the terms of the covenant be read out loud to the parties involved every so often. Part 5 gives a list of witnesses to the transaction. In 
non-Israelite treaties, such as the kind that Professor Mendenhall studied, we often see a list of gods invoked as witnesses with the understanding that they will take part in the enforcement of the covenant. This brings us neatly to part six, which is a list of blessings for compliance and curses for non-compliance. If you want to see a textbook example of the treaty covenant pattern in the Bible, skip ahead to Joshua chapter 24. This records a time when God's covenant with Israel was renewed, probably at a New Year festival of some kind. The chapter beautifully follows the treaty covenant pattern as I've just specified it here, except that there aren't lists of gods as witnesses, for obvious reasons. But let's return to Genesis. There are hints and statements from God to Abraham, starting around chapter 13, that he's got him singled out for something big. Chapter 15 is especially interesting in this regard, but the canonical location for the covenant of Abraham is chapter 17. When you read it, you will find many elements of the treaty covenant there, although not as neatly laid out as in Joshua 24. But the elements are present, especially the stipulations and the blessings for compliance. What were the terms of the covenant? First, God would give Abraham innumerable progeny, including royalty, kings, and princes. What was more, those descendants would derive both from Abraham and Sarah. Second, God gave Abraham the land of Canaan, however one chooses to interpret that, as an eternal possession for his descendants. Third, Abraham's God would be the God of his descendants, and the covenant would remain in force forever. All in all, good news. Now the bad news. As a sign of submission to the terms of the covenant, Abraham and all the males of his household, family, slaves, or anyone else had to be circumcised along with any others who were under this covenant from then on. The text reports that Abraham carried out his part of this bargain that very day. Something else to note here is that I've been getting a little bit ahead of this story by referring to our protagonist as Abraham, when up to now his name was Abram. We talked about the importance of naming in previous podcasts, and now that understanding looms very large indeed. Names were given to establish power over something or someone or to dictate their future. In this case, it could hardly be clearer. Abraham's new name, Abraham, means father of a multitude, while Sarah means queen. Now, there were two things about this that clearly troubled Abraham. The first was that he had no children by Sarah, and he wasn't getting any younger. Neither was she. This was the linchpin on which the whole covenantal arrangement depended. No kids, no covenant. God made it very clear that while Ishmael would enjoy extended descendants, the true covenant child would be Sarah's. The second problem was, how exactly does one hold God to the terms of a covenant? The answer, somewhat out of order, is in Genesis 15, where God also promises Abraham innumerable descendants, and, understandably, Abraham responds with something along the lines of, So when already? What happens next is quite remarkable. 
God orders Abraham to sacrifice a heifer, a ram, and a goat, splitting the carcasses so that the halves faced each other, plus a pigeon and a dove, and then wait. Abraham spends the waning day chasing off the carrion birds drawn to the smell of the animals. At twilight, Abraham was just dozing off when he found himself in a terrifying blackness. Several places in the Old Testament describe the presence of God as deeply terrifying. In the darkness, God reaffirms the covenant, and then Abraham sees a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passing between these pieces. There is no speech to accompany this act. None was needed. The author clearly intends that the eerie vision represents the presence of God or even God himself. By passing between the halves of the animals, God was using an accepted gesture to take upon him what was considered a solemn oath. In effect, by his action, he was saying, If I don't do as I promised, may my fate be the same as these animals. It was effectively a conditional self-curse. This would raise theological problems for those inclined to consider what power would execute the curse should God somehow renege on the promise. But I think that not only assumes a theological understanding not shared by the text, it misses the point, which was that God affirmed his commitment to the covenant between himself and Abraham using the strongest expression possible. talked about what a covenant is and about the specifics of the covenant between God and Abraham, but we still have not addressed the matter of why Abraham was singled out for such high favor. The Old Testament portrays Abraham as a righteous man, even if he sometimes makes a bad call, such as when he fails to inform a host that his sister Sarah is also his wife. There is a huge body of literature and tradition surrounding Abraham and what kind of person he was. While we can't rely on this for historical specifics, it does help us get an overall sense of the cultural explanation for his place in that tradition. All agree that Abraham was deeply generous to everyone. As we mentioned last time, this was a critically important trait for a successful desert nomad, but it also plays into a much larger theme throughout the Old Testament, and that is to offer support and aid to the vulnerable. The locus classicus, that's a nifty term that means what the one text everybody refers to when discussing something, for this question is Genesis 18 in which Abraham entertains three men in classic desert fashion. Here are verses 1 through 8. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat in the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed to the ground. He said, my lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant, who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk, and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now let's look at this more carefully. First, it was the heat of the day. In the desert, that's hot. But Abraham runs to meet these strangers, bows to them, and offers a little refreshment. Then we see what a little means in this context. Abraham tells Sarah to prepare three measures of fine flour. A measure in this text is a se'ah, which is about 6.6 quarts. Three se'ahs would be nearly 20 quarts of flour, plus an entire calf, plus curds and milk. Abraham himself stands by them while they eat, basically taking the role of the servant at this meal. So what does this mean, apart from the fact that Abraham's family was probably eating veal sandwiches for the rest of the week? Before we answer that, there is a larger issue here. The passage we just read offers a lot of detail about this event. We get the whole menu. We see every action Abraham takes, his haste, the care with which he tends to his guests. When reading a portion of the Old Testament, it's important to note that when you see a passage that offers a lot of detail, it's the author's way of saying, pay attention, this is really important. Not having italics, bold face type, or stupid little smiley faces, ancient authors relied on stylistic shifts and other literary devices to drive home important points. Abraham's hospitality is not merely adequate, it's lavish. And it is no accident that after this very passage, the messengers tell Abraham that Sarah will bear the long-hoped-for son. It is Abraham's generosity and decency towards his fellows that makes him worthy of this blessing. There's another hospitality episode that follows, and that concerns Lot, who entertains these same messengers when they arrive in Sodom. Lot's experience is a bit more harrowing when the mob outside his door threatens his guests with rape. Modern readers are horrified by Lot's offer to send his two daughters out to them, but according to the rules of hospitality, this was precisely the right thing to do. The guest was sacred, even at the expense of the host's family. Lot and his family are rewarded with survival, the only survivors of the destruction of Sodom. By the same token, this episode also justifies why Sodom was ripe for destruction. But there is one more example that merits our attention, and that is later in Genesis, when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. The servant has a little conversation with God, telling him exactly what he's looking for. Note that God is not setting the terms here. The servant wants a woman who will not only offer him water when he asks, but will offer water to his ten camels. 
When he comes to the well and finds Rebecca, she meets these criteria. To get a better idea of what this means, let's do a little story problem. Now, don't panic. It's not a bad one. A man comes out of the desert with ten camels, and a young woman offers to water them. One camel, coming out of the desert, can drink about twenty-five gallons in one go. An average Bronze Age pitcher, such as Rebecca would have used, holds between two and three gallons, but let's split the difference to make it easy and call it 2.5. How much water did Rebecca draw, and how many trips to the well did that require? Well, ten camels would require 25 gallons each, so 250 gallons. With a pitcher of two and a half gallons, that's about 100 trips to the well to draw over a ton of water. This was not a trivial gesture on Rebecca's part. But here's an interesting problem. The archaeological record is pretty clear that in Abraham's time the domestication of the dromedary camel was still a good five or six hundred years off. If that's true, this story, charming as it is, comes from a later time and was added by a later hand. I'm not making this observation to negate the value of the story. Quite the contrary. This incident was placed in Genesis for a reason. It's there to make a point and that point is that Rebecca was chosen to be the mother of Abraham's later progeny precisely because she was just as lavish in her hospitality as Abraham was with his. Abraham's generosity is also celebrated in other Abrahamic faiths. This is a Muslim story about Abraham that neatly combines the themes of generosity and survival. It is said that the prophet Abraham, upon whom be peace, was both gracious and hospitable. One day he went out to find a guest, but he couldn't find one. Returning home, he found a man therein, whom he asked, Who allowed you into my house without permission? The man answered, He who has allowed me in is the Lord. I am the angel of death. Abraham asked, For what reason have you come to me? as someone to collect my soul, or as a guest? He answered, As a guest. Abraham asked, What is your mission? He replied, Allah has sent me to convey good tidings to a man that Allah, the exalted, has befriended him. Abraham asked, Tell me about this man. Should he live at the ends of the earth, I would go to him and spend the rest of my life in his company. The angel replied, that man is but you, Abraham. Abraham asked, O angel, do you know why Allah has taken me as his friend? The angel replied, Because you give to people without them asking you. We said at the beginning of this podcast that Genesis and the patriarchal narratives were about survival, and so they are. But the mechanism by which the covenantal fathers and mothers secured their survival was not the way we would ordinarily expect, namely by intimidation or securing resources at the expense of others. Remember that the context of these stories was that of the exiled Jews in Babylon, seeking to preserve their faith and their people against significant odds. They were without the benefit of a government, an army, a king, or even a homeland. This idea, that true security and survival grow out of caring for others, is one of the most profound and important statements 
of the Old Testament. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm.